Right, before we start, I need to fix this chair. What are you doing? I haven't got the right Allen key for it. I'm improvising it. I've tried using it's my like, fingers. It's like watching normal wisdom put a deck chair up this. Have you seen me dice bag? <laughs> Grognard Files. Hello, my name is Dirk the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast, where we talk bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day and today. I'm coming live from my den here in the heart of the northwest of England. I'm surrounded by my stuff. I'm nostalgically flicking through my Grognard Files in a very reflective mood as this episode marks five years of producing this monthly bobbins. My great library of RPGs here on my right has expanded over that time. Here on my left is my ridiculous homemade shrine to the actor Caroline Monroe. I'll uh, just give her a tap. Ah yes, she's appeared with some lamb's navy rum because we're in a party mood. Get the best hobnobs in. Get some volivants and a pork pie with egg in. No holds barred. A few weeks ago, one of those Twitter anniversary things popped up on my timeline, reminding me that it was six years since I created the Dirk the Dice account. Back then, I was about to go on holiday. After a few years of reuniting with Blythe and Eddie, playing games that we had in the loft back in the 80s, I'd invested in the 6th edition of RuneQuest by the design mechanism and was taking it with me. I thought it'd be good to tweet and share some of my thoughts as I tried to learn the new rules. So I wanted to see if anyone was interested. Around the same time, as well as playing games together, defrosting from our deep freeze, Blythe, Eddie and I were also reliving our youth by watching Still Marillion, a fish-era tribute band to Marillion, who sound fantastic, really good. The lead singer looks a bit like Sinbad from Brookside rather than Fish, and the bass guitarist like Polly Bakaroo from The Sopranos, but they're great musicians. Catch them if you can when things get back to sort of normal. While we were waiting for the band to come on, I was taking notes as we were writing a memoir of our adventures in gaming, trying to recall anecdotes from way back in the 80s. I thought we could do it for our own amusement or release it as an e-book. The Twitter account would test if anyone would be interested. On my timeline, I started to share images from games past, vintage adverts and covers from games from the 1980s, slowly building a following. Around the same time, at Daily Dwarf was tweeting random selections from the heyday of White Dwarf. We became friends, sharing ideas and memories from times past. And he's right, everything does come back to White Dwarf. Thanks to Twitter, I realised that role-playing was still an active hobby. There were podcasts out there to support it. RPG Gamer Dad. The Dice of Doom the good friends of Jackson Elias, and Ken and Robin talk about stuff. Goodness knows what stuff they were talking about, but they were talking about it very quickly as if it was a living thing. 
not something that was in the past. I first broached the idea of a podcast to Blythe in early 2015, but he chucked his usual bucket of scorn on the idea. The memoir had withered on the vine. It didn't dampen my enthusiasm. I asked Daily Dwarf if he'd be interested. He was more supportive, offering to write something as long as he didn't need to speak. There were a few faltering starts. I don't have a great voice for radio. I'm hesitant, a low talker and a borderline mumbler in real life. If nothing else, this podcast has made me speak up a bit. Eventually, the first recording was made. It was far too long, so it was split over two parts, which has messed up the numbering ever since. I convinced Blythe that we talk rubbish to each other all the time, so it would be the same, only recorded, with minimum effort on his part required. On the 7th of August 2015, it was published. A year later, we launched Grogmeet, our annual get-together and the first Grogzine. Six months after that, we launched the first virtual Grogmeet. Oh yes, we didn't need a global pandemic to stick virtual in front of an event. Before we knew it, we were playing like we never played before. We made connections with new players and made some great new friends in the process. The first episode was about RuneQuest, because that was the first game that we played together, and it remains my favourite. The most exciting moment in those early weeks was being contacted by Rick Mainz, who said he'd enjoyed the podcast. At Gen Con that year, Greg Stafford had won the Diana Jones Award, and it had been announced that Rick was to become president of Chaosium. Over these five years, RuneQuest has transformed too with a new edition and a whole new range of high-quality supplements and materials. Jason Durrell, the line editor for RuneQuest Glorantha, returns in this episode. He faces the Games Master's screen, picking points of his career to discuss, as well as bringing us up to date of what to expect from RuneQuest soon. Blythe and I are in the room of role-playing rambling and have a special Thunder Phase round of questions from Patreon supporters of the Grog Squad. Also... You've seen his hands on the YouTube channel. Now you can hear the first, last and everything by Bud from Bud's RPG Reviews. I'll be back at the end to give you details of Grogmeat-ish, the online version of Grogmeat that we're planning later in the year. Until then, ramblers, let's get rambling. Games Master Screen! Uh, welcome to uh, the Games Master's screen. I'm going to put this uh, screen between uh, myself and Jason. Jason's back. Hello, Jason. Hello. <laughs> How are you? It's been a while. <laughs> it's been a while, yeah. So I'm going to put this uh, this screen in front of me to, to hide my secret table. Because it's you, Jason, I'm going to roll on a percentile dice on this table. <laughs> man after my own heart here. <laughs> Let's roll. Okay, first up, it is uh, Assault on the Mountains of Madness. Now, you, tell us a bit more about that. What's, what, what, what's, what's the story behind that? Assault on the Mountains of Madness is um, this uh, part of Chris Birch's epic Octone Cthulhu campaign. I think it might actually be the, the last installment before it kicks into um, 
the next iteration of that, which uh, Chris had pitched to me once quite a while ago, and I'm not sure how much he's made public about how the next uh, phase of Octon Cthulhu uh, was planned to go. The story involves the, the Nazis are down there, and um, how familiar are you with that, the Mountains of Madness, the story? I, I, I remember the story a long time ago. Okay, yeah. well... I, I, remember the, I remember the inventory very well. I mean, you know, it's these two explorers find this ancient city that's like 50 million years old, and um, everything is dead except for a few Shoggoths running around. And um, they learn the history of the Elder Things and their fall of their civilization through these mosaics that are um, carvings and... Uh, visual depictions of their culture and their ultimate demise. There is this hint that there is like something in the mountains of madness. There is this being, this uh, entity, like buried in the mountains that may have driven the elder things mad over the, the millions and millions of years, or they may have built a city to try to ward it and keep it at bay. But, um, you know, and there's the question of, can it be released? So the Nazis in the uh, assault on the Mountains of Madness, they're clearly in the Elder Thing City, and they're going to unleash this gigantic, titanic Elder God and try to control it as a um, doomsday weapon. You know, and they're either going to do it to just destroy the world or to try to use it against the Allied force. Uh, Chris discovered this very fascinating and completely weird bit of history. There was this... Uh, fellow, I think his name was Edmund Pike. He was an inventor, uh, a British citizen, and he, the notion of trying to be able to assemble very large aircraft carriers that were, couldn't be sunk. That was a primary thing because, you know, you'd invest on this gigantic aircraft carrier that took forever to make. They were very resource intensive, lots of steel. And then if one sunk, you're just screwed. You've just lost an enormous amount of effort in humans. And so Pike came up with this stuff he called Pikery, which was basically frozen sawdust. And he discovered that at a certain ratio of basically this sort of paper pulp and sawdust, and I think there may have been some chemicals in it, it would maintain being frozen for an astonishing amount of time. Mm -hmm. And the notion of this gigantic slab of basically frozen paper pulp and wood shavings means that you could just carve all of your internal rooms out of it. It floats because it's naturally buoyant, you know, ice is and wood is, and it absorbs unbelievable amounts of damage because it's just, you know, you can just fire machine guns at it forever and they're going to be fine. Even rockets are just going to have very minimal damage. You're not going to end up with a hull breach that sinks the thing. So the idea would be that the allies put together this, um, uh, gigantic um, aircraft carrier of this Pycrete stuff, and then they head down to Antarctica with a multinational uh, force of allies and um, Russians to go down and take the battle to the final ground and handle, you know, wage war against the Nazis and get to the Elder Thing City and stop them. So, you know, Chris had this uh, loose outline, and as I mentioned earlier, um, the other contributing writers had written sections of it, like here's part of the Elder Thing City, here's the tunnels near the Elder Thing City, here's an Elder Thing Tower, here's this, but there wasn't a, and here's the base, the you know the the coastal base of the Nazis, but there was no like 
villain. There was no main character, no leader down there, none of the the rank and file. And so, and there was a lot of space in between these uh, locations. And so I ended up having to write this much larger uh, campaign for that. And um, it turned into, I, I think, I'm pretty pleased with it. I apologize mightily to the other contributing authors for that because I folded, spindled, and mutilated their, their work dramatically because I think also there hadn't been a lot of coordination in how they were going to write it. And so there was the tonal shifts between sections were so dramatic that my job was sort of to come in um, and just smooth everything out, give it a consistent tone, a consistent voice, and um, make it work for, uh, for the game. It's a, it's a multi-system setting, isn't it? Acton Savage Worlds and Call of Cthulhu. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was written primarily for um, Call of Cthulhu, and then we had a fellow come in late and adapt the Savage World rules to it. Is Call of Cthulhu part of your game? Because I don't think you've contributed to the Call of Cthulhu line, have you? It's hilarious because Call of Cthulhu was, in fact, it was either my first or my second uh, Chaosium game. And... Um, I literally have written for, um, I wrote for The Laundry, which is basically, you know, the sort of Lovecraftian inspired uh, Charlie Strauss office comedy meets Lovecraft horror meets <laughs> spy genre tropes. Um, I've written for Octum Cthulhu, and then I ended up writing for World War Cthulhu and its follow-up uh, World War Cthulhu Cold War. And so I've written for just a, a, a small raft of, these second generation Cthulhu things, but I have never in fact written anything for Call of Cthulhu itself. But now that I work for Chaosium, I'll have to, uh, in all of my free time, I'll have to hassle Mike Mason for him. I I pitched ideas at him periodically and he's like, that's great. When are you going to write it? (laughs) I'm going to go back to the table. Oh, hope it's not a fumble. Uh, 65 and on 65 on my table. This is the basic role-playing gold book Ah, this is the Bible, isn't it? This the, is the BGB. The BGB. Yeah. The BGB BRP. Um, yes, that book, when Chaosium was doing the Stormbringer 6th edition, I think, the one that was basically a um, rewrite, like a very loose, thinly rewritten version of uh, Elric. I had written something for uh, Dragon Lords of Melnabome, and they told me that they would love it if I would write something more for Stormbringer, um, for the new version of Stormbringer. And so I said, I'd love to write an Eternal Champion source book where the players play Eternal Champion level characters, and they are these movers and shakers in the multiverse, and it's rules for creating these badasses and their companions and their um, their beloveds and um, just all of this epic stuff. And it would be a catalog of all of the published Eternal Champion characters, you know, so Corum, uh, Ulrich Scarsel, um, Ericos, uh, Clin of Clingar, Conrad Arthlane, um, just all of them. Even Jerry Cornelius, he was going to be in there. So I started working on this. And as I'm working on it, I'm having to pull in just just constantly pulling in uh, rules from other BRP games so that I can support these characters and their world. You know, you can't 
Like you can't do a source book for Stormbringer and then say, oh, and here's Jerry Cornelius. Like he's got a vibro gun. There are machine guns in his world. You know, <laughs> I mean, he's in modern world of the 60s and 70s. And so I was just suddenly realizing, oh, there's so many of these little boxes about like, here's how to handle this. Here's how to handle radiation because of uh, Ericos's magic sword that gives people radiation poisoning. Finally, the uh, the Moorcock license, um, for various reasons, Chaosium uh, passed that over to Mongoose, and um, I uh, was not really interested in working um, with them on that. And so um, they said, oh, well, what do you want to do next? And I said, well, you know, it would be pretty cool if you had all of these various variant rules and all these like different things put together into one big book. Here's modern and sci-fi stuff, you know, modern stuff from Superworld and mutations from Hawkmoon and um, psychic powers from ElfQuest and um, sci-fi stuff from Ringworld and from Superworld uh, or from uh, Future World in the World of Thunder box set. And I just said it would be awesome if this was all in one book and you could just pick and choose what you wanted when you were going to run the game because I, I was finding that I was actually carrying this vast number of different games around when I'd go run some crazy hybrid setting. I said, great! And so I worked on that. I had a co-writer, um, but he had uh, life stuff and he had to, to back out pretty early, and so I ended up carrying it um, the rest of the way myself, and um, the rest is history. <laughs> You know, um, yeah, I started working on a uh, source book for that um, interplanetary, which was going to be a sword and planet adventure, which some parts of had come from the um, the John Baker uh, Warriors of Mars stuff by Michael Moorcock. So, it was, you know, I, I cannibalized my Eternal Champion manuscript as much as I possibly could. And then... Um, uh, life's happened. Uh, Chaosium um, didn't really seem that at the time to be that enthusiastic about following up BRP with any uh, like real source books. And so and also I, um, you know, I, for various reasons, decided not to pursue the project and then, you know, did a bunch of other stuff with Guardians of Order and a few other companies, Margaret Weiss Productions over the years, and then eventually came back to uh, Chaosium. Um, Kersim's uh, basic role playing, he's been at the core of our um, group, you know, as we've been playing back in the day and when we've come mm. back. Why do you think it's such a, an enduring system and set of rules? Uh, the first thing about it is the sort of flat results give you a wide range of um, possibilities for every You know, it makes every fight be fraught with danger. You never know mm. when a critical is going to happen and just obliterate your character or an NPC. And uh, I think for other games like D&D, for example, there's a very sort of scripted progression of characters, whereas at a certain point you um, stop feeling like they're in danger from certain types of foes. In VRP, you still have that element of danger and that unpredictability. The intuitive nature of percentile dicing, it doesn't take much to explain. You have a 60% chance of succeeding with that. It gives you this sort of cold, scientific, like, this is the how it, it's going to work. It's also easy and very intuitive to make decisions. Like, if the rules don't cover a particular topic, it's very easy for GMs to uh, explain it on the fly. And other than spells mm. 
for the most part, everything you need to know about your character is on your character sheet. Yeah, it, it's interesting you raised spells because um, we had uh, Loz Whitaker on uh, our previous programme and mm-hmm. uh, we are talking about spells and how in BRP sometimes it's the spells that cause the challenge. Mm. isn't it and yeah. um, that's what I find interesting about uh, RuneQuest Glorantha which no doubt we'll talk a bit more about later but um, that that seems to uh, reconcile some of those difficulties doesn't it yeah, Ma- yeah. making them I magical mean, yeah I mean magic is another one of these great equalizers in that it is sort of unpredictable it has um, it also sort of breaks a lot of the rules of reality I mean in some ways I think that um, magic in BRP is frequently exception-based. Like that's, magic works in a way that the rules don't support. And whereas other games, you might find that they struggle a lot with trying to make magic sort of work mechanistically within the certain system. Magic in uh, most BRP games is where you say, okay, this is where this, magic is where the rule just breaks. Like you just ignore this, this part of reality and it just happens this way. And I, I don't know, I mean, I think it's a certain kind of a flavor that um, a lot of people like. It certainly yeah. appeals to me. Yes. Okay, let's go back to the uh, table. All right. In fact, I'm not going to roll a dice for this one because no. this is a diceless result. Oh, and wow. <laughs> I think, didn't you? Okay. <laughs> yeah, well, we, we, we brought up the amber diceless role-playing. Uh, okay, but yes, then. I I I have never played a diceless role-playing game all right how does a diceless role-playing game work well there are lots of different diceless role-playing games there are ones that are based on sort of resource and token spending where you basically have like you you have a certain finite number of tokens or ability points or whatnot that you can spend amber diceless which is i think the first of the real diceless games the idea that Eric had about the game, as I um, spoke a lot to Eric Wujic when he was uh, sort of mentoring me in game design, and a lot of my uh, the things I think about game design were either they came from either Eric Wujic or from Greg Stafford. I didn't know Greg personally uh, until much later in my life, but um, Eric and I um, talked a lot and uh, communicated very regularly, and so. Um, Eric would say that he, when he was designing Amber, he kept think he thought that eventually dice would come into the game somewhere, that there would be a point where the mechanics said, okay, I need to roll randomly here. But the more he went, the more he realized um, there's this very deterministic fact of the way the characters relate to one another, where um, one of the princes of Amber, there's a bit Corwin, who's the protagonist of the books, um, there's a point where he sort of susses up his various brothers, and there's this very clear indication of, like, there's Gerard. He's the strongest one of us. If he puts a hand on me in a fight, I am dead. And then he's like, and there's Benedict, who's the greatest swordsman. And he's like, if Gerard grabs Benedict, Benedict loses. If, if Benedict keeps Gerard at sword's point, Gerard loses. And so there's this, and, you know, Corwin knew where he stood when the books began. He thought, I'm second or third best out of my brothers in swordsmanship. And so there was this very clear notion about these characters sort of ranking themselves and knowing how how they stand against one another. And for most um, games that involve randomness, that sort of falls apart. Um, 
this notion that you just there's a surety when you say something like um, Prince Gerard of Amber is the strongest living being <laughs> in yes. this world. If he, he there's nothing he can't do involving strength. And so anyone who's less than him is going to lose automatically. There's not a case mm. of them like uh, they could get an edge or a lucky roll or whatnot. And so Eric's idea was that basically everything boils down to this sort of attribute ladder where you basically rank characters. When you create your characters, you sort of bid for um, how you're going to be ranked on this ladder in a series of attributes, which are strength, um, warfare, psych, and endurance. And basically, based on uh, where you stand, you know instantly how you measure up against the other characters and um, ideally against the rest of the elders and the rest of the world. And so, um, but then some of that disappears very quickly, like the, the attribute ladder, they call it, vanishes once the GM says, okay, now we're playing. You don't know because players can advance without necessarily telling them that, oh, I spend experience points to get my, my warfare up. And so anyway, in the course of play, anytime two attributes come into conflict with one another, the GM just looks at the chart and looks at the ladder and says, well, character A has a higher attribute than character B. Um, they will always win under normal circumstances. And then they say, how are you going to change those circumstances? Mm -hmm. And so that's where you end up with a lot of very tactical thinking. And so players start um, trying to take advantage of various, uh, you know, whatever environmental um, things they can bring into play. They, um, they use tactics, they try to switch attributes. So for example, the, the example I use of uh, Benedict versus Corwin, uh, or Benedict versus Gerard, these two major characters for, from the book. Um, Benedict is just the deadliest swordsman who ever lived. Gerard is the strongest mortal, um, or well, immortal as it happens. And if Gerard can get uh, Benedict in any sort of a hand, like he can get him in any sort of a wrestling hold or just punch him, he's going to win. And Benedict knows this, and he knows that if I can keep Gerard at sword's point or at, at bay, I can cut him into pieces eventually. And, you know, eventually I'll wear him down to the point where I'll just be able to dispatch him. They're brothers, so they wouldn't fight like that. But they they know this about each other, and there are times where the, the family members come into conflict with one another. And so the idea would be, you know, Gerard would be like, well, I'm going to take some hits. I may even let, I may even like Benedict, like stab me, run him through so I can grab his hand and, you know, like immobilize his sword and try to beat the crap out of him otherwise. And so you end up with these sort of this interesting tactics happening to the way, point where characters are shifting the attributes they're using in conflict. And it creates this just absolutely amazing, um, uh, very deep personal investment in uh, yeah. the role playing and uh, resolving conflicts. And so, and did that so, emerge around the same time as Prince Valiant? I think they might have been uh, within a couple of years of one another. Yeah. And now I don't know if Eric and um, Greg knew each other, but I'm sure they were familiar with each other's stuff. Yeah. I mean, I'm fairly sure Greg read. Amber and knew about it, and I'm hundred percent positive Eric knew about Prince Valiant. Yeah, I'm going to seek that out because that sounds uh, fascinating. It sounds really good. Yeah, and yeah. I think, I, 
it's uh, out of print now. Um, the uh, or rather, Amber is uh, Prince Valiant is a, available in a lovely new edition from Chaosium. <laughs> um, I wrote a version of um, a uh, game that took the the Amber system and adapted it to a new setting that was sort of congruent with Amber, um, called Lords of Gossamer and Shadow, which has a bunch of universe hopping semi-immortal characters moving through what is basically the backstage of reality. Wow. And, um, yeah, what yeah. happened there was a uh, publisher, he said, I'm going to try to get the Amber license. Would you write some more stuff for that? Um, and I said, you will not get the Amber license. I'd happily write for it, but you're never going to get the license. And he said, I'm going to get the license. And I said, I repeat you will not get the license. It will be a cause of frustration. You will give up. But if, you know, something, if by some miracle you get the license, let me know. And uh, Steve Russell, the um, guy, he was tenacious enough that he hit the brick wall of getting the license, but he managed to get the rights to use the system. And so we did an informal poll of a bunch of fans of the, uh, the game, and we said, if somebody were to do a new game based on the system and constructed a game entirely around the diceless role-playing system, what would you want? And most of them said, we'd like something that kind of felt like Amber, but was different enough that it felt like its own unique thing. But if we wanted to cannibalize it and run and put that content into Amber games, it would feel at place. So that was my very narrow target window that I was sort of shooting for, and that's what ended up being Lords of Gossamer and Shadow. Oh, I'll definitely seek that out. Let me do a final roll of uh, the dice. Oh, and it is a critical. It's a zero, one, because it's oh my God. RuneQuest in Glorantha. RuneQuest in ah, Glorantha. well, right. RuneQuest in Glorantha, my day job, yeah. as it is. <laughs> yes, um, I played RuneQuest back in high school. That was one of those early games. It was probably the third Chaosium game I played after um, Stormbringer and then Call of Cthulhu and then RuneQuest. I ended up running it for quite a while and ended up playing in a campaign quite a while. This was RuneQuest's second edition. And then um, I understand now, and I think I've uh, looked more charitably at the rules, we all bought RuneQuest 3 and we basically converted our characters. I think there was a conversion guide within that, if I remember correctly. And we started playing, and it just felt so different. Like, it was just a completely different feeling and tone, and I think that we sort of just, um, I think that we all just kind of lost interest in playing after that. It was very strange. I mean, the notion, too, of like we, we could have just quite easily just put down third edition and kept playing second edition, that never occurred to us. It was almost like a mandatory software update where they mess everything up. Um, and I realize now the design considerations and what was happening, and I've got far too much insight into what was happening with our Q3 behind the scenes. But for my, you know, 16, 17-year-old mind, it just was not the game we were looking for. And the fact that they had initially um, uh, sort of divorced it from Glorantha was also problematic, and then that meant that there wasn't new Glorantha stuff, and it was just this sort of fantasy Europe. And fantasy Europe sounded really cool, but there wasn't anything there yet. You know, there was nothing, no fantasy Europe book, no 
guide to Constantinople, no nothing to to you know the GM pretty much had to make it up from scratch. And I at the time was way too busy, you know, graduating high school and all that. And so um the notion of constructing a whole setting for RuneQuest 3 was um, not anything that appealed to me that much. And so we sort of put that aside. I kept aware of Glorantha and RuneQuest over the years, and I would use RuneQuest 2 for um, all sorts of other settings. You know, like it was always a very simple, easy-to-use setting. I'd either use Stormbringer or RuneQuest or some combination of the two. Um, and then... Um, you know, uh, years late, years and years later, basic role playing happens. I moved to Berlin. Um, uh, a fellow uh, Gianni Vaca, who is one of my stalwart playtesters for the basic role playing game, he um, said to me, "He said, do you know that the 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 lead writer guy for uh, Glorantha lives in Berlin?" And I said, "I have no idea." And so. Um, I had uh, backed the 13th Age Glorantha Kickstarter, and I, um, when I think I backed it before I moved to Berlin, and I was saying, "Oh, I'm curious, can you ship it to Berlin?" And they said, "Oh, postage is going to be like ridiculous, um, some absurd amount." And I said, "Oh, well, you're you're fulfilling from Europe. Can I just get a copy somehow?" I heard that the lead. The, the one of the major writers lives here in Berlin and they said, okay, so we'll put you in contact with Jeff Richards. He can give you one of his copies and you can pay him for it and it'll all work out. And so um, uh, Jeff and I ended up uh, hitting it off quite well. And um, I, you know, there was one uh, eternal con, which is a uh, kind of a famous convention here in uh, uh, Germany um, at a castle on the Rhine River. It's the spiritual um, successor or one of the two spiritual successors to the famous Tentacles convention that was always a Chaosium stalwart uh, convention. And um, the uh, the Moon Design crew, um, all of them, Rick, uh, Mob, Neil, and Jeff, um, they were all very evasive in this particular thing and i i felt like i had maybe pissed them off a little bit um by something you know and so they were uh you know i noticed that they were very close-lipped and they were having lots of sort of small conversations and whenever i'd come up it was like hey guys and everybody would get really closed mouth and whatnot and i thought oh something is up and then i sat in on a um uh web-based seminar of uh virtual thing with the um, guys from uh, um, the design mechanism. And it was supposed to be about um, the new Glorantha book for RuneQuest 6. And it was extraordinarily awkward. Like um, uh, poor, um, I think it was either Nick Middleton or Pete Nash or both. They, they, it was clearly like something had happened and something was a little awkward. And I thought, oh, okay, there's a little something strange there. And then later, um, a couple of weeks later, the Chaosium, the Chaosium guys, the Moon Design guys, and uh, Jeff told me, well, we were in the process of buying Chaosium at the time and we didn't want to leak that. So we had to avoid you because, you know, we were avoiding anyone who might be um, connected to the previous management or could possibly be um you know somebody who we wanted to approach later and find out you know what you want to do if you want to do something with us so i was like oh i'm 
so relieved that it wasn't anything I said or did. And no, then they asked me if I'd like to uh, uh, discuss the line and figure out where the next version of uh, Glorantha should go. And so I did some consulting for them and um, started working on editing some stuff and writing the quick start for uh, the new version of RuneQuest uh, role-playing in Glorantha. And then um, I decided to leave my regular job as a uh, full-time game designer for uh, the MMO company here in town and just went full-time freelance. And uh, Chaosium picked me up. And two years ago, um, Mob came on uh, the program and to launch... uh, uh, request Gloranta. Just cool. I was on the eve of uh, actually uh, being launched, so that, that was good. And a lot's happened in those two years, hasn't it? Because uh, it feels like there's a whole new generation of people who've picked up um, Gloranta and started playing Request again. So that must feel good. It is very, very good. Um, yes, it, it's very exciting to me, and I think also the fact that the new version of the game has been embraced so wholeheartedly by many, many of the old, um, the veteran players and, you know, these people who have carried the torch for this game for decades, um, and that it also appeals to new players the way it has. I think that that's um, really great. But at the same time, we're constantly trying to figure out, you know, how can we make this game appealing to new players and keep... um, veteran players and to convert players who have heard of it over the years but have never jumped in. So I've, I've run the quick start for loads of people. I've run it many times at the Broken Tower. Awesome. It's a really good uh, introduction Thank to the you. game. And it, it surely is a starter set on the pipeline. Is, is it that... is um, my overwhelming driving task every day, working on it, polishing right. it. I've been playtesting the uh, starter set scenarios. We have a gorgeous cover. Interior art is coming in. Maps have been done. Um, and yes, it, it's. Um, I think the uh, well, the uh, obviously the world took a weird semi pause. Mm-hmm. Um, but the goal was originally to have it out um, like by the end of the year, and I think we might be able to make that. Some of that. Um, becomes a little problematic when we start considering uh, international printing like this um, because it's a boxed set. There's a strong chance we'll have to print in China because uh, a lot of European printers don't um, aren't able to handle um, printing at the quality that we need. And so we want something that's the equivalent or superior to the Call of Cthulhu starter set. And so that that rules out a lot of printers that we can utilize. And so we may have to go to China for that. And the Chinese printing industry, um, as a result of the uh, the pandemic, took a major hit with mm-hmm. a lot of print companies just shutting down entirely for months. So, And they shut down early. So um, they're right now in the process of sort of catching up. So it's a challenge, isn't it, uh, with a starter set? Because you've got to um, cover a lot of ground, haven't you, uh, particularly with uh, yeah. the rules. So how have you done that? Well, um, it's going to be a three book set um, with some cool maps. Um, the first book is the rules um, just get you set into the game. And that's basically an expanded version of the quick start rules. 
um, enough to play the game and uh, probably also work as a table guide if somebody wants to have something that's not a 400 and you know 36 page uh, hardcover at the table. It's it's going to be light enough, probably somewhere in the 36 to 48 pages, depending on how this, uh, the layout is. Um, and that will cover everything that'll have all the spells and all the gods and cults and whatnot. We will have a plethora of um, pre-generated characters for you to pick and play. There will be some maps and some reference materials and whatnot. Um, and of course, dice. You gotta have uh, some dice in the quick start set. The second book is a overview of Glorantha that approaches it at a very high level rather than getting in like super deep. Um, and that I'm uh, whittling it down in size so that it is not this monolithic, uh, gigantic thing, but it more gives you a sense of what the world is like and how to play in it. And then there's a guide to the city of Johnstown, which is um, a famous RuneQuest Glorantha location and um, a fairly critical location in a lot of the, uh, the history to come in the setting. We decided quite early that we wanted the uh, starter set to to appeal to both um, veteran players and new players. And so the idea of giving a, a basically a nice city guide for a city that's never been dealt with in any detail um, seems very appealing. And it's also um, enough size that is manageable for a GM or for a group of players. There's plenty of activity, plenty of stuff happening, and it also connects geographically to almost everything else we've published. Um, mm -hmm. You could easily take the starter set and then expand and go into the GM pack, which covers the nearby area of Apple Lane and um, Clear Wine. And then we're going to be doing the Dragon Pass campaign, which will detail Bolt Home and whatnot. Um, we're doing a Sartar source book, which will also expand that. Many of the adventures in the Smoking Ruins and the Pegasus Plateau books, which were adventure collections, take place within... Um, like three or four days walk from Johnstown. So there's quite a lot that you could do. Like once you start playing with this starter set, you could, once you've exhausted the adventures in that, you can immediately pick up another book and continue on with that. So that's the goal. Um, and then the third of the three books uh, will be adventures. And there's going to be a, a solo adventure that teaches you the, uh, the rules at a uh, basic level. So everybody could start there. And then an intro adventure that sort of picks up right where the solo adventure ends. And then we go into a second adventure that immediately follows on the heels of the first solo adventure. And then the third adventure is a return to the Rainbow Mounds, a oh, classic fantastic. old uh, Gloranthan location. And we treat it as if the stuff the adventurers did there, you know, like back when that first appeared that happened I think 12 or 13 years ago and so what's happened in this place since and so we've got a gorgeous new map for that that'll be one of these big fold out lay on the table maps um, and uh, um, whatnot and then from there all sorts of adventure seeds and sort of stuff that you could take you know some material that you could look at with the what's in the box and run little smaller adventures without needing to necessarily invest in the bestiary or the core rules yeah and that sounds so, that sounds great and it's really good to hear that uh solo adventures are making a comeback because i think that works really well in the call of cthulhu set yes yes we looked at that as pretty much a um 
like the template for how we were going to approach this. And then we um, uh, also pretty much picked up every other starter set that was physically available at the time and sort of did a compare and contrast and tried to decide like, what do we feel we absolutely need to have? What do we feel we would like to have? And there's still a couple of items that may go in that um, uh, I haven't revealed yet, but we'll have to see how they go. <laughs> Here on my uh, bookshelf, I have uh, a preview copy of uh, Cults of Glorantha from Gen Con oh, yeah. 2018. Yes. So how's that progressing? Oh my God. Um, yeah, I mean, the various books are in editing. Um, We've added another book to what will be the slipcase edition from that and broken out a book from that. Um, so, I got this. <laughs> um, yes, when we were uh, putting it together, um, Jeff really, he needed to have all the spells in one place. And so he created what he called the Red Book of Magic, which was basically all of the spells um, in the cult's book and in the game entirely in its own little guide. And so that's basically a grimoire. It's, um, it's pretty standalone, and we figure it's an indispensable table reference. Originally, it was going to go in with the Cults of Glorantha um, slipcase, which will be a lovely two-volume set. But um, I argued quite passionately that I feel that if I have a gorgeous deluxe slipcase set, um, I don't want to be pulling out one of the books all the time as my table copy. It's going to get all battered, and it's mm -hmm. going to you know, it's going to get worn and whatnot. And, um, you know, and then I'll have this empty slot on my shelf. So I said, why don't we make that a book that is just available as a standalone book? Um, because it's an indispensable player reference. And I said, let's just do two volumes in the, the slipcase. And that went back and forth. And then Jeff said, well, there's also the prosopedia. Like maybe we could just stick that in this little paper thing, and I said, "How many words is that?" And he said, "It's about eighty thousand." <laughs> and I don't know if you've been um, uh, involved with the behind the scenes of putting together a an RPG, but when somebody says eighty thousand words for a manuscript, that's you know you're talking about anywhere between one hundred and twenty eight to uh, one hundred and sixty pages. And so I said, "That's not like a little." you know paper cover slide in um that's a book and so anyway so that is going in with the cults books and the cults books um we've just got um Luik Muzi, i think that's how to pronounce his name who has just um finished up doing the art for the amazing malleus monstrorum for mm. call of cthulhu and now he's dedicated full-time to uh executing the art for the uh, Cults of Glorantha book. And every day I get to see some of his work and it is astonishing. I mean, this is going to be a real, a thing of beauty and a joy to behold. Well, what's, what's really great to hear, uh, Jason, is that, you know, you've, you've worked in gaming for such a long time, yet you still have an enthusiasm for it and uh, you can feel it. I, well, I think, um, I mean, very early in my career, I realized that I didn't want to work on things I wasn't passionate about. And, um, and so um, maybe that's sort of, perhaps that set me back in my career at various points where I, you know, sort of got out. But um, I frequently, uh, you know, if I come into work and I'm just dreading what I'm working on, then I don't want to be there. You know, life is too short for that. And so if 
I were not completely thrilled about the work I was doing, I would not be doing this. Well, thank you for sharing it with us. Thank you. Thank you. Thunderface! Welcome to the room of role-playing rambling. I've got Blythe with me. Hello, Blythe. Hello, Dirk. We're in a sort of celebratory mood because we've been doing this for five years, Blythe. Five, five years. years. When, I, when you got roped into this, did you think we would be doing it for so long? I, I didn't think we'd get beyond three episodes, to be honest. You know, I say sort of celebrating because we're in our ho- own homes again, aren't we? Recording we this from yeah. our own homes. Yeah, normally we'd, we'd probably be doing this in the pub, wouldn't we? Well, we do, I, just to give a, an idea of what happens, because people don't... Re- this is like behind the scenes, isn't it? This is what would normally happen. We'd have an early dart, wouldn't we? We'd be leaving work early, get each other excited a little bit a couple of days before we're going on a JBO. We're going, going, to, be, to, going to the pub, freedom. Away <laughs> from all the concerns of home, work... Yeah. The sanctuary of the Lassagary snug in Manchester. We'd go and have a, an all-day breakfast at Gorilla and, uh, yeah. in Manchester. And Gorilla in Manchester was under threat of closure. So we'd have a breakfast and we'd go into the Lassagary, draw the curtains and then start to record. And we'd be giddy. We'd be, by the time we were recording, we'd be giddy with excitement. A man of our age getting out of the pub. It's like stepping into another dimension, isn't it? Dimension. That would cast the dimension door spell. We're off. It's not quite the same as it sitting in your own home where you're working. No, not quite as exciting. The alcohol is is more is required more. I think. I, I don't know technically because I'm not being able to work it out. I don't know whether we can actually meet each other in a pub at the moment. I don't know. I don't know what the rules are. I mean, it, it comes to something when um, you know gamers don't know what the rules are. Exactly. Yeah. Rules lawyers. Apparently, I'm a rules lawyer. I don't know what the rules are. I can I can pick. You know, I've got a bookshelf there with rule books that make mortals or make muggles the people who don't play rpgs go pale when you say oh these are the rules um but i i can't understand the lockdown rules the government the government have beaten me no game no role-playing games have beaten me but the government have let's face it with um, i'm looking at aftermath at the moment with aftermath you'd at least get a flow chart to explain it <laughs> To explain it, yeah, we just don't even get that, do you? All you get is a load of bloody slogans. That's all we've got to work on, isn't it? It's hands, face, ups a daisy. Knees and toes. You're in a partial lockdown. I'm not in a partial lockdown. You're not. No, no, that's true. I dig a tunnel. So what we're going to do, we're going to make the best of it and have a sort of celebration. I've got a can of shindigger. And uh, what are you drinking? You bomb viver. I'm drinking a Sierra Nevada. So what we're going to do, it's a special episode, so um, I've given a call out to our listeners, and we're Mm. going to do a thunder phase. So this is a Oh, a thunder phase, yeah. Rapid fire, run through, a series of questions. So who's going to start then? Is it going to be you or me? I'll start. Go on. on Dip into the thunder pot. The thunder pot. Thunder phase. Right, here we go. Oh, this is is appropriate, given our earlier conversation. Alcohol at the gaming table. Yes or no. We developed a rule, didn't we, of no alcohol at the gaming table because we had one or two bad experiences, didn't we, with Kevin. Kevin drank. So, yeah, this is uh, back in the uh, early noughties, didn't we? We started playing D&D with uh, Kevin. And uh, people who've listened to the podcast for a while will know he's the one that is still riding a very high horse about resurrection. (laughs) 
yeah. Yeah. One time we went uh, playing with him, and that was the first time that we, because uh, we were adults, weren't we, playing, and we were mm. drinking for the first time around the table. Yeah, I think it was. I think you're right. Because back in the day, even though we played, we played games when we, you know, were of of legal drinking age and just under. Um, but we didn't we didn't combine the two, did we? It wasn't something we ever did until that point. Yeah, he he would be drinking Thigson's Old Peculiar for yes. all day, wasn't it? And people yeah. don't know yeah. Thigson's Old Peculiar. Thigson's Old Peculiar is particularly strong, isn't it? It is. Yeah. It's like a very treacly dark beer that's quite strong. And he's he was very he's very slight, isn't he, Kevin? Very slight. Yes. Gust of wind did fall over. After five of these, you could see that his eyes were going in different directions. And I think at the end, the game ended with him, him more or less passing out. Yes. That's we were talking. To, we were talking to some guards, and his head hit the table. <laughs> it did. We thought, is this part of the theatre? Is this part? This of part the- is this part of the yeah. Has someone cast a sleep spell and we're unaware of this? Has something <laughs> happened? Kevin? Kevin? Would, would shake <laughs> oh, no, he's, he's just wrong. And, and, and there used to be uh, uh, like that, wasn't it? So his wife actually uh, disappeared. Disappeared whilst we were playing one time. And uh, Kevin said, I'm going to have to go up and see what's happening. Yes. And she's fallen asleep on the toilet. She had fallen asleep in the toilet, and I think, I think, yeah, she was on some kind of antihistamines as well at the time, which didn't help. I don't think alcohol and antihistamines, yeah. But yeah, I think it's a, it's just a dangerous thing to do because I can remember those games. Everybody drank apart from either me or you, because either me or you would have been the, were the designated driver. So there were games I think that I ran. I remember one in particular where everybody got very drunk, and I got very annoyed because it was. Just everyone was just silly drunk, you know. And I think the same happened to you. That I was probably silly drunk because, and I think that that's what made us think, no, it's not a good idea. Yeah. And I, I think, I think generally, I think I would stick to that. I don't think it's a, a great idea. I do sometimes have a drink. Um, we've we've taken to having Sunday night games, and I sometimes we'll have a nice glass of whiskey as we play. Yeah. Generally, I say no or in moderation. That was a question from Wayne Peters, so thanks for that, Wayne. Okay, let's go up uh, to the next one. I'll go in my thunder pot. Are you ready? One, two, three. Thunder phase. You're not joining in, are you? You know what I'm like. I'm a, I have an aversion to pantomimes. I don't like anything that makes me join in. Does every series have to have closure? When it comes to a campaign, do you have to know that it's coming to an end? Does it have to finish with everything tied up it's always nice if it does i think there's uh, been a number of uh, that's happened over the last uh, six months in particular where long running series have come to an end so we've ended star trek haven't we we've mm. ended two-headed serpent which was a very long campaign and we've recently ended the deadlands camp- campaign that we were uh, yep. running that came to finale and they came to a finale in very different ways didn't they well, Turdid Serpent was it's kind of pretty written, isn't it? So I suppose it's built that's built in to come to a kind of climax, isn't it? You know, yeah. it's very kind of clearly signposted, isn't it? That without without giving too much away, people haven't played it, but it's very clearly signposted that this is this is it. This is the big finale, you know. All the villains are there and that kind of thing. So you, you know it's that's quite a good that it's clearly signposted. 
I suppose with homebrew stuff, it's more difficult, isn't it? And it can be more difficult as well when it's kind of an episodic campaign as well. I ran some Tales from the Loop for you and Eddie, didn't I? And I think we played about four, is it four or five sessions, something like that, with the same characters? Yes. Yeah. And they were kind of individual scenarios. So each scenario had a closure because it, it was self-contained. But when we when we finished the fourth or fifth session, we, we've stopped for a bit now. But it didn't have a it didn't have an overarching closure, did it? It was just this is another scenario, and that scenario's ended. Well, I'd say the Deadlands one that's uh, recently finished. The just feel with that one, there's a lot more loose ends, and mm. so there's some bits of the character arc that haven't been resolved. But yeah. in some ways, yeah. it doesn't feel like it matters because that wasn't crucial to the actual stuff no. that we were doing. I think closure is very difficult with with long-running campaigns. It's a difficult thing to do, isn't it? You know? So with the, with the Star Trek one, that was uh, a little different as well, wasn't it? Because that was, is, is it fair to say it's the Deep Space Nine era? You know more about these things than I do. Yeah, it's a next generation thing, but deep, deep, we were around Deep Space Nine where it was kind of focused more on the Deep Space Nine stuff, yeah, storylines, yeah. And, and that um, conclusion was interesting because it had a few guest stars, didn't it? So uh, Spock appeared. Yeah, yes, he did, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, and Spock. Yeah. and uh, everything in the kitchen sink was uh, thrown at it, including a ki- kitchen sink with a dolphin in it, uh, an intelligent dolphin. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, but it was a memorable ending to the campaign, and perhaps yeah, I, I did that for a number of years, didn't we? And it was good because my takeaway from the whole campaign was the experiences we had in that final session. Mm. See what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I suppose making a memorable last session is is a way of bringing some kind of closure to it. Yeah, almost things like that. Spock appearing that that felt like a signpost of this is this is the climax of things that you're going to meet a really key character in it. That kind of thing. Yeah. And we just had a run of Conan haven't we, which yeah. I, I kind of um, telegraphed beforehand that if this was um, good enough after eight sessions or whatever, then we would have a second season next year. A bit like the, <laughs> the Yeah, and I think I think that's an interesting thing that you say that about telegraphing it. That's something that we've kind of started to do, isn't it? Telling players outside of the game, right, next time, this is the, this is the finale. And that does kind of help because it influences players' actions within the game because players think, ah, right, this is it. Throw everything at it. Do everything now that you want to do with your character because this is your chance. You know, even even things like being a bit more carefree about character death even, people might think, well, if they go down fighting in this one, Fair enough. It's the end. And there's a difference in saying, okay, so we're going to end this run of uh, the campaign, but these characters are going to come back. So the attitude of the players is going to be different, isn't it? Because, you know, this idea that at Two-Headed Serpent, I did feel like everybody was playing their character like they stole it, like a one-shot almost, because they knew that they had to save the world, and so they threw everything at it, and if their character was sacrificed as a result of it, so be it. This is called the Cthulhu. This is what happens. Yeah, and I ran ran some Deadlands, and again, with Deadlands, the final session of that was very clear. 
this is the grand finale. The shootout with Wild Bill was, this is it. You know, this is what it's been building to. And everyone threw everything at it, didn't they? You know, yeah. And it was good as well because in that last Deadlands one, I think Steve's character nearly got killed, didn't he? And I was quite happy to throw everything at him, mercilessly, really, because I thought, he knows this is the last session. He knows this is the finale. So it's fair game now. I can just go for them all. <laughs> just try to kill them all. I don't care. And it made it kind of quite, quite exciting, didn't it, I think? The knowledge, that everyone's knowledge, this is the last session, made it memorable. Not just what happened in it, but that, dare I say, metagaming, but that thing of outside the session, everyone knows it's the last session and it influences the way people play it and the way people run it, I think. Yeah. Okay, let's do another one. It's your turn. I'm going to have a sip, on my, sh- I'm going to have a yeah. sip on my shindigger while you, you do, do that. Thunderface, okay. Thunderface. Oh, thund- need- Thunderface, yeah, Thunderface. You're not joining me now. How long is too long for character creation? That's a good question because there's a <laughs> couple of games that we've played over the last six months that have had very involved character creation. Yes, yes. With Runecrest Grilanta, wasn't there? About the whole two and a half hours, three hours. I think three it was about... Took us just over two hours, didn't it, to create our characters? And then we thought, well, we'll start next time. So it was well over two hours to create a character. Conan was very similar. Yeah. You know. So with the, with both of those, and with um, the recent Eberron campaign, where we yeah. did that online as well, didn't we? Hmm. Um, we had session zeros where everybody built the characters together, which is a nice little thing that we've introduced recently, isn't it? To actually yeah, yeah, work yeah. with the group say right what kind of character do you want to play i think when we did the eberron characters i said it's part of the game you, you do there's a tendency to forget this because we do a lot of one shots a lot of con games and all this kind of stuff and people use pre-gens and that kind of thing but you forget that back in the day and even even now it's part of the game and it rolling a character is part of the game you know, there's a tendency to, as you said, use pre-gens or get people to roll the characters outside of the game and bring them to the table, that kind of thing, isn't there? Um, but it is it's part of it. And it always was part of it, wasn't it? You know, I can remember back in the back in the day, we would have a session where, right, we're going to roll some characters, you know, that kind of thing. And it is it's fun, it's part, it's fun, it's fun rolling characters. Part of, the, part of the rationale of um, doing the RuneQuest Glorantha uh, characters together was to try and get heads round some of the history that had eluded us because, yeah. you know, as we said in previous uh, podcasts, we love RuneQuest and we played RuneQuest a lot back in the day, but we don't classify ourselves as Glorantha files. We don't have a deep, layered understanding of the world. We just enjoy playing in it. But I think what the RuneQuest Glorantha character creation does, it helps you to get to grips with some of the history because your character and the ancestors take part in it. And so we were using the map, weren't we, to find points in the map where events had taken place so that we had an understanding of where the character's journey had been around Dragon Pass. Yeah. And I think sometimes that, that kind of involved character creation is useful because in in the Galantha character creation, 
it does help you create a character that perhaps you're not quite expecting. You know, we're all probably guilty of, of having a, one or two character types that we like to play that we can end up defaulting to. Although you have you have some agency over the kind of character you want to play, you know, it doesn't force you to be anything you don't want to be. So if you want to be a big warrior, you can be. If you want to be this, you can be. That you can be. But the background roles and the family roles and the family history roles develop a character that you're not you know you you, you might not come up with naturally on your own if you see what i mean yeah because yours was uh, quite an involved backstory wasn't it because it turned out that you were Ezraelian, but unlike the rest of your family you were academics you were more um that's a- right i'd rolled this character who was like a a bit of a rebel who didn't want to be an academic, but then there was a relation, an unmarried aunt who was kind of was a bit of a rebel herself, and you think, oh, maybe she's got some kind of connection with this aunt rather than her parents and her more her other family, and it, it, it develops those kind of ideas because it's giving you things that you might not necessarily have thought of on your own. I need to tell a story of uh, those characters because, uh, as we said, we spent. Uh, two and a half hours and I think by the end of it we were quite content with the characters that each of you both you and Eddie had created Uh, I took them home and what happened was I I moved into the den three years ago and I've never really properly moved in so I decided to have a massive clear out and just sort out the piles and piles of stuff and the first thing I did First thing I did is I took these uh, pieces of paper and I thought, we've got RuneQuest tomorrow. I need to take these papers with me. I need to put them somewhere safe. For goodness sake, I cannot lose this in this chaos that I've created in this room. There was stuff stuff everywhere, everywhere. (laughs) And I was going through individual pieces of paper, turbing them up, putting them away you know just having a general good old clear out bagged up stuff but when i was allowed to go to the charity shop i was bagging stuff up to send to the charity shop and uh, and, and that and then it came to about half 11 at night and i thought i need to just get me request stuff together i was very satisfied with the way that i'd ordered the uh, study i was able to get my request stuff down and i said right those character sheets what did I do with those character sheets? And all the order that I then forced onto this uh, space became suddenly disrupted as I ripped everything off the shelves, out of the cupboards, out of the files, trying to find these two pieces of bloody paper. I think I think you messaged me and said, did, did I keep your character sheets? I think at one point you doubted you even had them. Exactly, yeah, I did. And I sent you I sent you the terrible message back. Yes, you did. Why? What's the problem? <laughs> you haven't lost them, have you? I <laughs> no, think just was... checking. No, just checking. No, no, just checking. Just checking. The ultimate <laughs> sin lost the player's character sheets. <laughs> and I was going through him. What are we going to do? I'm going to have to make them roll again. Maybe I can yeah, remember. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're wishing you were playing a simple game. <laughs> You know, maybe I can remember what they were, and I can I can put them all down. Yeah, I can remember. There's something about a little sparrow that um, you got as an heirloom. Yeah, but I can't remember what his uh, size was. Or um, 
oh, so I started panicking. And I thought, <laughs> well, we can't be far away, can it? So this was half one in the morning, and I was there in me boxer shorts. So the guy next door who has CCTV, goodness knows what he <laughs> must have thought when he saw me quite in me, uh, you know, me Thanos boxer shorts. And I was there, head foot, head in the bin, pulling out. Thanos, Thanos box. You got Thanos boxer shorts. Well, you know. Little inside there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> When it, when it bends, when it bends over, it clicks its fingers. Anyway, I, lead, I was leaning over into this uh, into this bin, pulling them out. I thought, even if they've got beans on them, I'll be able to copy them out again. And I was mm. pulling out all this. So I thought maybe it's in the car. So I went in the car, cleared that out, and it went on and on. And it got to like half two, and I thought, I'm just going to have to face up to it. I'll have to play something else tomorrow, but I have to go to bed. Went to uh, bed, and there it was on my nightstand I put them at the side of my bloody bed to keep them safe so you know I've done that so you won't lose them exactly yeah <laughs> oh uh, dear well that is joking apart that is the curse of the involved carriage creation isn't it that the carriage you spend so much time creating the character you can't lose the character sheet no you know and, and then, and then yeah. the, the, the funniest thing about it was, in the game we played, Eddie's character got killed. He did, yeah. So he'd spent, he'd spent all that time creating a character. You spent all that time looking for it. I only played him for a couple of hours and he was dead. Shall we do another one? Yeah. Thunder phase. Dungeons and Dragons is still the biggest game. Is it the best introductory game? And that's from uh, Dan Connolly. Thanks, Dan. I think pe- pe- because D&D is the biggest game and D&D is the shorthand for role-playing, isn't it? I think people want to play D&D. I think that's part of the problem. When it comes to introducing people to it, there's almost an expectation that that's what they would want to play if if they're, in- if they're interested in trying it. Nine times out of ten, they're interested in trying Dungeons & Dragons. And so to say... No, let's play something else. That they go. Oh, I want to play Dungeons and Dragons. I've uh, run the starter set, so the Mind of Fandalf, you know, the first encounter and the first caves for a group of muggles. You know, people who really didn't know what it was and they just were curious to see what I did. Mm. They they never played anything like it before. The idea of a board game of things like uh, Quirkle. Do you know what Quirkle is? No, it's no. like it's like dominoes with uh, colours, rummaging, you know those kind of things. So, so kind of puzzle-based games, and because mm. they come round and we play games, and they wanted to play Dungeons and Dragons because they'd seen the starter set and was mm. thinking. That's 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 the point, isn't it? They've, they've, if you say if you say to them, well, actually, no, let's play this instead. They, there's a bit of resistance, or it's immediately there's resistance because they go, oh no, no, I want to play Dungeons and Dragons. So the question, the question that Dan's asking, is it the best to do it? And mm. from my experience, they found it very difficult because you know you've seen you played Lost Minds of Fandelva. That character sheet is quite involved and complicated. It's a good introduction to fifth edition D and D. Is it? I don't think it's a great introduction to the world of role playing because it gives you everything. You know, it's not like a 
cut down version. It's giving you backgrounds, yeah. your drives, your backstory. Yeah. Um, there's a lot. Of, the, the, there's a lot. Yeah, I agree. There's a lot on it, and I think, uh, yeah, I, I would agree that although people want to play D and I'm not sure it is the best introduction to it. I think something like I, I've got a game called Tiny Dungeon, Tiny Dungeon, which is a yeah. good, is a really good introductory game. I think because it it works on the basis that you don't have you don't have attributes and stats or anything like that. You just pick three traits that you're good at, three things you're good at, and you just roll. I think not really the rules for a bit, but I think you roll like one dice. And you have to get over four or something, something like that. And if you try it, it helps you, you roll two dice and take the best results. It's very simple, just using D6s and things like that. And I remember when I picked it up and read it, I remember thinking that this, this would probably be something that I would, if someone wanted to learn about role-playing games, this would be a good introduction. Because there's enough moving parts to make it interesting. But... It's not bewildering. The character sheet isn't bewildering. You've just got to think about there's some, you know, there's some hit points, there's some damage from weapons, and then there's some traits. Some of them might be magic, but you get three three traits. So you just got to look at those three things and go right. I'm strong, or I'm this, or I'm good at that. I'm good at that, and you get some extra dice, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's very very simple. Very very little to worry about on the character sheet, you know. Because the thing with the role playing game is that. The interesting concept behind a role-playing game is that thing of agency and storytelling and doing what you want. And the more rules you've got, the more bar- a barrier that is to people getting the head around the primary concept, which is telling a story together yeah. and doing what you want to do. What I wish I'd done is just taking your example of it's what people want to play because what they recognise. I suppose the other thing that people recognise is fighting fantasy, isn't it? So the game book. So if you said to them, do you remember the game books in the 80s? Do you remember, you know, choose your own adventure? Yeah. 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 And um, just use that. Just use that because mm. that's very simple, isn't it? Uh, it's a well, you've got, system. I mean, advanced, advanced fighting fantasy is, is quite good because that's fighting fantasy with a few bits added on and it's quite quite simple, you know, yeah. quite a simple game to understand. But, that, but like I said, I think, so I don't think it's the best introduction to it, but I do think in terms of presenting people with an introduction, because it's such a popular game, there is that natural curiosity people have of, Wanting to play Dungeons and Dragons. That's what the people want to play. Right, come do us another one. It's your go. Okay, my go. Do your Thunderface thing. Yeah, come do it. Well, are you going the Thunder part? Have you, have you oh, got I'm in, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in the Thunder part. My hand is in the Thunder part now. Thunderface. Ever resentful for using something only once? Are you ever resentful for using something only once? <laughs> Can, I, I know a couple of people. So, for example, um, Guy Milner has his idea of his blog, doesn't he? Burn After Running. Mm. And yeah. I know that uh, Dr. RPG Griff says he only ever plays an adventure once mm. and then yeah. it's gone. It, you know, for, yeah. for him, it's that's over. Yeah. But I feel kind of resentful <laughs> for uh, <laughs> spending time on something. Mm. It's this prep thing, isn't it? And just trying it out once. I I, I always so particularly with one shots. I, I think what I'm getting at here is pregens. I know I know that pregens are important, and I spend a lot of time 
constructing pregens and getting the the right if i if i'm only going to use those six characters for a three-hour session or a two-hour session yeah i feel resentment i do feel resentment yeah i hate pregens i've started looking at games where people can try and create the characters as part of the session or, or prior to the session and have a bit of input even, even, even the even with one shots yeah yeah yeah, I mean, I just ran that Tales from the Loop for Burrito Con, and I got I got people to come up with some of the ideas themselves. It's easy to do with an online game because because you can prep it, you can do that before the game starts. But it was good. It was good because it it felt more interesting for me, more interesting for me thinking seeing what they come up with. And, I, and I'm drawn to games now that that I can do that where people can either create their own randomly or they can pick their own things. It, it adds a bit more. Uh, spontaneity to things and i get that for me as a games master i get that but i think um so we've played a, a couple of games so um mortborg and electric bastion land which mm. kind of pride themselves in a simple way of producing characters yeah, yeah. but they're very flavorsome aren't they very very detailed yeah, yeah, and they've got yeah. a lot to them and a lot of motivations going on are you not concerned that in those situations about mortborg that produced really interesting characters, didn't it? That had yes. lots of stuff going on. Like one person was a vampire, the other person thought they yes. were possessed or something. But within the scenario that we had, that didn't really come into it, and that was far more interesting in a way. Exploring yeah. those elements. No, no, I, you're right, and I think the trick you've got to have a scenario that sort of allows the players to stretch the legs a little bit. So the Tales from the Loop game, they came up with ideas. The nature of that game and the nature of the scenario was such that they could kind of, it, they, had, they had room to breathe and room to do what they wanted. That, that was fine. So you've got to, you've got to, it's got to be the right kind of scenario. I know what you mean. If you've got a, a very precise scenario that requires certain characters and skills and traits, then yeah, you suppose you've got to do pre But I just don't like doing it. I just find it boring. Yeah. It's a boring thing to do. You're right, with Tales from the Loop, again, that's got the advantage of being a recognisable setting. So I think when I played that, I think I've just lost myself in a bit of 80s nostalgia as much as anything. Yeah. And yeah, uh, yeah. if you play around with those ideas, you can kind of loosely have some archetypes to play with. But I, I do think some games, players need to have something to hang on to for yeah. their way into the plot, don't they? This is the situation. What? what's my role within it but going back to what you were saying about scenarios i wouldn't say i necessarily have a rule that i run things once but i find when i get around to the third running of something i'm getting a bit bored of it i'd rather write a new one come up with a new one let's do something new the whole fun of this is to do new things the whole fun of the the lonely fun isn't it of being a games master is to come up with a scenario let's come up with a different adventure let's come up with something new not not just i can't run the same thing all the time no i think we've compared it to uh, a chewing gum losing its flavor yeah it is a bit it is like that yeah, yeah. i find i find that it does peak in the second one so the second time you run something you kind of think i've got this right now and then the third yeah. time you're thinking oh this is a bit predictable i know what's going to happen this conversation's kind of really talking about convention games isn't it but we've we've run things once I ran some of those Tales from the Loop adventures for you and Eddie, and I won't run them again. I yeah. ran them once, I won't run them again. The Deadlands thing we did for the, that I did for the Wednesday night group, I won't run that again, that little series. I won't run, I won't run it again. It's done, I it's done, it's gone, you know. 
I might be wrong, but I don't think you spend as long putting those together as you would do as something for strangers. So if you're running a, a one-shot yeah. for a convention, yeah. you put a bit more effort in, I find. So yes. it's, yeah. I think I came up with this question because the start of the year I created six Gamma World characters and the way that I did them was a bit like a, a playbook so that people could choose their um, mutations. So uh, to give, like you were saying, a bit of choice for the players to choose what mm. they wanted to do and what the artifacts would be. So just had a list that they could pick from. But each one of those took me over an hour to do. So that's six hours of investment for a, a two-hour session. Yeah. And for that very reason, I've run more uh, Gamma World, not particularly because I wanted to. It's just that I wanted to get payback for the time I invested in doing it. Mind you, sometimes it's good. I've, I've run some Best Left Buried games, and what I've got for that game is a pool of about 12 pregens that I've used for different scenarios. So sometimes it's handy to create a set of pregens for a game and know that you can use them in yes. different scenarios, which takes some of the pressure off once they're created. That's it. But then again, you come back to that thing of to kind of tie into the earlier question about carriage creation. Pre-gens that are simple to create are one thing. Pre-gens that are really complicated. You know, doing pre-gens for Runecrest Grilantha, that kind of makes my blood run cold. If your blood's running cold, we should just uh, have a break and we'll hand over to Bud from Bud's RPG Reviews. And he's going to give his first, last and everything. Grognards, my name's Bud and it's my hands and voice that you see in here on the YouTube channel Bud's RPG Review. I've been a gamer for over 35 years with a few breaks scattered throughout and my first was RuneQuest, though it's a little bit more complicated than that. Let me explain. My first exposure to a world of swords and wizards was in the place I grew up in in Liverpool, Norris Green's Woolworths at the age of 12. I had a voucher for my birthday and while I was perusing the latest releases, a book cover caught my eye. The Seven Serpents from the Steve Jackson Sorcery series. I promptly bought it and dove headfirst into a world of fantastic creatures, deadly traps and a spellbook of three-letter words that your character could use, while also wondering who these characters that you were supposed to have met before were, not realising at the time that there were two books released previously that explained everything. This gave me an appetite for all things fantasy and I went on to enjoy the fighting fantasy series immensely but my first true love was the Lone Wolf books by Joe Diva and Gary Chalk with the double page spread of the Summer Sword unleashing its power against the ships of the Dark Lord Zagana being something that has lived with me since. I loved the book so much that I wrote to Joe Diva at the time to ask him some questions so you can imagine my elation when he took the time to write back. Then, one day in school, we had a lesson where a teacher didn't show up most likely due to the constant teacher strikes that were a feature of the 80s. Mark, one of my friends at the time, turned to our little gang and said, OK, let's do some role-playing. He explained that it was a bit like the fighting fantasy books, only he decided what would happen next. We crafted a semblance of dice out of ripped-up bits of paper and spent the next 45 minutes playing a small dungeon that he had made up on the spot. It was all I could think about for days afterwards, and then Mark dropped it on us. Do you fancy playing with a proper system where you have proper characters? He said, pulling the RuneQuest 2nd edition book out of his school bag. We were in, and over the next six months played three times a week, developing our characters and sinking into the game. In fact, I still have the character sheet of my first ever role-playing character, Gluxor, a barbarian who ended up with 98% in Polax. The thing is, 
We just used the system and the spells and made the rest up as we went along. We had no idea what Glorantha was, as Mark only had the rule book, which we didn't really read. Indeed, we spent many a lazy hour wondering why there were spells for things like detecting silver. From there, we moved on to Judge Dredd and Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, games I continue to love to this day, and played together constantly until we left school and the gang went its separate ways. Gaming has never felt the same as it was back in those days. My last is kind of broken down into two things, what I've played and what I've ran. At time of writing, my regular group are currently playing The Modifius Star Trek, a game I am genuinely struggling to be enthusiastic about as we made the mistake of letting one of the players be the captain. One of my oldest friends, Mark, no, not the one who originally introduced me to RuneQuest, another Mark. Yes, my role-playing world has an abundance of Marks in it, similar to the over-proliferation of Andrews at the current time. So, he is playing a Betazoid Chief of Security, who's more akin to an Inquisitor from Warhammer 40k than the gentle, empathic advisor played by Marina Sertas in The Next Generation. We seem to be spending more time discussing what we're going to do than actually doing anything, which is causing frustration in the Klingon emissary I'm playing, who is a Batleth's width away from attacking the other players to break the tedium. I am, however, confident it'll pick up, and there'll be less talking and a bit more action. Additionally, it's worth mentioning that during the COVID lockdown, I've also had the chance to play RuneQuest with Pookie and Liminal with Dr. Michener, which have been unforgettable experiences and made the quarantine just that bit more bearable. The last thing I ran was kind of special. It was a Delta Green scenario of my own devising that I ran for a group of well-known people in the gaming community, live on Twitch. Not least amongst them was Shane Ivey, the co-creator of Delta Green, the role-playing game. It was probably the most nervous I've ever been running a game, and Shane really put me through my paces, but I was heartened afterwards by him telling me that he really enjoyed it, and it was very cool. My everything, like everything else I've said, is a combination of a number of things that make up the whole. Having people react positively to the video as I put so much work into is very rewarding. Indeed, in 2018, somebody contacted me to say that it was a combination of my videos and the Grognard Files' podcast that had made them get in touch with their old gaming gang and playing RuneQuest again even saying that they felt that we were leading the charge for the game. It definitely gives you a warm feeling inside. Also, my home group of tight-knit friends that I've gamed with for the last 14 years, and on and off beforehand, are my rocks. They were all supportive of me when I decided to create my YouTube channel, and my friend Lee even came to the UK Games Expo last year to play in Dirk's now legendary PSI World game, where I finally got a chance to meet people that I'd only known as Twitter handles before, and of which the whole experience sparked my newfound love of conventions. Without my gaming group, I wouldn't be doing any of this, and it's them, Mark, Lee, Jen, Neil and Nathan, who would be there if I retreated back to anonymity and sealed the gates. Finally, the wonderful people I've met since I stuck my head up with the battlements, who share the same love of all things role-playing are important to mention. People that brighten my day with their endless positivity. Yes, you guessed it, I'm talking about Dr. Cowie. As well as the likes of Neil Benson, Pookie, Griff, and well, I could go on, but you know who you all are, and I thank you for welcoming me into your world since I left my own gaming bubble. So that was my first, last and everything, and this is me signing off. If you haven't already, then don't forget to check out my channel when you have the time. Bud out. Okay, welcome back to the room of role-playing rambling. Thanks for that, Bud. And uh, we're back and we're going to think, what, you, you've charged your glass up, what are you having? What's your next drink you're having? Something called Heart and Soul, I think. Vocation Breweries. I've got Bowling Brewery. Bowling Brewery. Um, Bowling Brewery, right, okay. Yeah. Fez- pheasant Plucker. A pheasant Plucker. Okay. You ready for this? I'm going with my thunder pot. Go on, thunder pot. Thunder phase. Player versus player. Can it ever be anything else but horrible? <laughs> player versus player, in my experience, works under under a couple of strict, strict conditions. First condition is one shot. <laughs>
don't don't have player versus player if you're doing a campaign or a series of games because it builds resent it can build resentment if a player kill particularly if it gets to the point where a player kills another player that is a recipe for disaster isn't it and also it's got to be managed so that it happens in the last hour that it happens you know because we've played a couple of game I probably shouldn't mention it because they might be run at other times and spoilers but in both occasions the the twist that one player was a villain was done in the last hour and that works because it's a nice kind of twist where everyone looks at each other as if to say what what's going on here and the realization one of you is not as it appears to be I think it's a subtle difference I call it play character versus play character because I think if you say that it's not really player versus player because that makes it sound like a competition doesn't it it's really setting against one player character against another and we've played a couple of others where it's been implicit from the start so in the Hawkmoon game there's a Grand Breton hostage that you played wasn't there and your motivations are set against everybody else in the party they they are but interestingly in that scenario you had him drugged so that he would be compliant until later on in the scenario towards the end. And that's kind of what I mean, that you can't have it from the beginning because if it, for the beginning it can cause, I think it just caused too much of a problem right from the word go. So you've got to keep it suppressed in some way. Because otherwise you might never have, ever get off the first spot. Yeah, yeah it'll turn might. into a game of paranoia and you'll never get out of the first room. Like my character in the Moon game, if, if he'd been set against the other characters right from the word go. He could have just caused mayhem and they'd never get to where they were going. I mean, the other game we played was we play-tested Paul Fricker's forthcoming Fathoms Deep, which is going to be mm. on the Miskatonic repository very soon. And that telegraphs at the beginning that there's player character versus player character elements yeah. to it and be prepared for it. Do you think that's a good way of dealing with it to kind of prepare people to say, actually, that before we start, there's some element of player character versus player character. Can be, yeah, yeah. If it's if it's going to crop up, I mean, I, I think in that scenario, it's kind of not inevitable, but it's it's there, isn't it, as a possibility? And the question asks, can it be anything less than horrible? But I don't think it has been when we've encountered it. You could, it's got the potential, hasn't it? But doesn't necessarily. It's not necessarily the case. It's got the potential to be horrible if if. It depends where it's coming from. If if it comes from a player, you know, if it's like a a campaign and one of the players decides to off her own bat to do something, that that can be horrible, I think. Because yeah. again, the things we're talking about are things that are engineered by the games master. The games master's yeah. that in the time bomb, the games master has created a scenario that will create con- conflict and warns the players. I suppose what that question could be aimed at is if player a player player decides, you know, oh my character, my character's a, a rogue and he's gonna steal everyone else's treasure yeah. and stab them in the back, literally, when they're not looking. That I think that can be horrible because yeah. that can create proper conflict and tension around the table, I think. I'm getting post-traumatic stress response from those early games with Kevin. What I remember was his brother. His brother played, and his brother played a thief. And the thief would always pocket the treasure and the magic items and not tell anyone. And to be fair, I think me and you found it quite funny. Kevin didn't find it funny. It created a lot of conflict. 
Yeah. But his brother would said, yeah, but I'm a thief. I'm, I'm just going to found this magic wand. I'm just going to put it in my bag and not tell you. You don't know. And he got really annoyed about it. But I don't know if that was player versus player, brother versus brother. Uh, uh, yeah, there's that psychological stuff going on. Isn't there? Tank, tanked, like up on, tanked up on old peculiar and vodka. I don't think it... Uh... Yeah, that was old peculiar versus vodka, I think. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which which can, can be nothing but horrible, ultimately. Thunderface! Oh. You're trapped on a desert island. Which RPG would you want to be with? So that's from uh, Adam Buxton, not that one. Not that one, no. Fighting fantasy book, because I'd be on my own. Yeah, Tons and Trolls. Very good Tons solo. Tons and Trolls, of solo adventures in it, in it. Yeah. <laughs> if I was on a desert island, the last thing on my mind would be RPGs. Where did I get on a desert island? Yeah, what am I doing here? How did I end up here? But I understand the spirit of the question. I, I yeah. get the idea. The desert, desert island RPG. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. Um, so, so I'm on this desert island with Lauren Laverne asking me. I think it would have to be Savage Worlds. Really? Savage Worlds? Yeah, really. Really Savage Worlds. Because we've played a lot of Savage Worlds this year, haven't we? We have yeah. played a lot of it. Played a lot of Savage Worlds, and it's, it's versatile. So you could do a lot on your desert island. You could do a lot with it, couldn't you? You could do fantasy, science fiction, and horror. You could do anything with it. But it is versatile, and it have, I have really warmed to it as a system. I think initially we were both a bit sceptical. It's a bit of a fussy rulebook. I find the rulebook a bit fussy, um, because like all generic games, it has everything included in it, which is a bit feels a bit messy somehow to navigate your way through it, because it's got superpowers and all sorts of things. You've got superpowers, magic, technology, cars, guns, laser guns, normal guns, everything. But when you drop it into a setting like Deadlands um, or, you know, or we've done the Day After Ragnarok and we played that, um, uh, you know, when you drop it into a setting, it's, it's, really, it's a really good little system. It really works well. Is that Clint the dog from the pub? That's my dog. I'm not kidnapped, Clint. If I was on a desert island with a, an RPG, I think I would take uh, Legend of the Five Rings. Not because I've got any particular affinity uh, towards it. I played it for that 12-hour game that we did last year for charity yeah. and enjoyed it very much. But it's because uh, last year I kind of went wild and bought all the books and I've not read them. And they're beautiful-looking mm. books, but I'm afraid every time I look at them, my eyes pass over them. You know, I keep mm. I keep skimming through the books. If I was on a desert island, it would force me to actually read them rather than just go through. Oh, that's a pretty picture. Oh, that's a, and actually see what content was in. I, I, I think sometimes like, you, you sometimes do that with role playing books when when you you know you're not going to be running it anytime soon. I think that's part of it, isn't it? Thunder, Is there, hang on, go on. Do it, yeah, do it, do that thing. It's very Thunder slick f- operation, this, isn't it? Thunderface. <laughs> Is there anything you got? Is there anything you used to shun that since coming out of Deep Freeze, you find yourself embracing? Ah, that's a question from Alistair Davidson. Um, and he wants us to wish him a happy 50th birthday. Happy birthday, yeah. Yeah, so I feel like a DJ now. Yeah. Like Radio oh, 1 or something. Okay, and... Uh, <laughs> Coming up next is Grace Jones with Pull Up The Bumper. Before then, over to you, uh, Blythe. I think the thing I used to shun a bit was simplicity in games. Back in the day, 
I was very simulationist in role playing. I wanted role playing games to reflect some kind of reality. And it's like Traveller. I couldn't get my head around. I could never quite get my head around in Traveller where it was like you rolled an eight or more. You had to roll eight or more, didn't you, to do stuff. But now I find myself embracing those kind of systems. You know, I like, again, going back to Savage Worlds, I like Savage Worlds. What do I need to roll? You need to roll four. You'll have different dice because you'll be better at some things than others, but you need to roll four. That's, that's what it all revolves around. And I think back in the day, I would have been appalled by that kind of idea. And I find when I look at my um, my game, my bookshelves now, my games, I just, I like that simplicity. That, that t- playing Tales from the Loop, you know, roll, roll a clutch of dice. You just need one six. You need one of the dice to be six to succeed. Sometimes you might need two sixes if it's difficult. You might need three if it's really difficult, but that's very rare. So most of the time, you just need one six. And I think back in the day, I wouldn't have liked that. I was very much a room quest thing, room quest percentages, hit locations, you know, the idea of not having hit locations. You know, you've got to have hit locations. You know, that's that's what it would be like if you hit the sword. It matters where you hit, you know, all that kind of thing. But now I find myself drawn to, you know, simple systems, powered by the apocalypse, things like that, more and more and more. See, what I found... Um and people might see this change in us um, from the um, begin early podcasts. I mean, I've not listened back to them for a while. I didn't really care too much about the rules. I didn't get too carried away with them. And I used to hand wave situations away. I'd kind of wish, that sounds good, let that happen. No matter what the rules say, don't let it happen. I still kind of feel like that, but I have got a bit more of a rules matter uh, GM than I was um, and more interested in how the dynamic between the story you want to tell or the game you want to play and the actual rules and mechanics of the game playing new games and playing different games has helped me see that you know there is more opportunity with some mechanics to do different things well you've been it's interesting because you could argue you've kind of gone the other way haven't you because you've run a lot of Mithras which is quite a crunchy system, Mithras, isn't it? Um, yeah. And although we, we've said in the last podcast, Conan 2D20 isn't crunchy, but it's it's not it's not kind of, um, it's not a breeze, is it? You know, it's not one you can explain on the back of a bag packet. It's not that kind of game. No. You know, I wouldn't have said five years ago that you would have been drawn to games like that, but you were more drawn, you've been drawn to those kind of games, whereas I've veered away from it a little bit. Like yeah. I said, I've been uh, become enamoured with that Mutant Year Zero engine, whereas you've gone into more crunchy stuff. I thought that when we were playing the Hot Moon game, I thought, I did think in the back of my mind, hey, look at his Dirk, look at Dirk with his character sheets and all these bloody numbers on, look at this. I never thought they'd get it in him. But it, it's interesting, isn't it, that divergence in us? You know, maybe yeah. the new rules. You want the gavel? <laughs> no, thanks. Only one, only one careful finger. Thunder phase. Horror, fantasy, or science fiction? Horror, fantasy, or science fiction? Ooh. Horror and fantasy, I'm all right with. I always have a bit of a problem with science fiction. For that for that reason of the backdrop, the setting, the whole thing. So quite enjoyed Star Trek because it's Star Trek, isn't it? You know what it looks like. You know what everything looks like. So it's Star Trek. That's easy. But... A lot, of, a lot of science fiction games, I, I don't know. It, it, I find it tricky. 
did say we're going to be playing Slipstream, aren't we, on our Wednesday night group, but it's Savage World, and Slipstream is kind of like Flash Gordon science fiction. And when Steve sent us the player's book, I had a look at it, and I thought, yeah, I, this is great, because I get it, it's Flash Gordon. It's like those old TV shows, great, fantastic. That's that's fine. I have a problem with that. But some science fiction role-playing games I struggle with, because I just think it's hard to get an angle on it at yeah. times. What, what kind of universe are we living in? What kind of technologies? What's, you know? So you've eliminated um, science fiction or about horror and fantasy. You can arguably do anything with fantasy, can't you? Yeah. So you I might... think that's why, that's why it's popular. I think you can do, because you can do horror with fantasy. Yeah. Well, what I was, my, my answer it was going to be all three. So my perfect world is one that is science fiction fantasy mm. which is got elements of horror so i like a gritty yeah. world where there's like a science uh colliding with uh fantasy that's why i think hawk moon is such, such a great setting because you know it's got the uh depravity mixed with the uh, uh science and the fantasy because it's like a feudal medieval europe mm. but they've got a weird science as well Okay, here's the next one. Underface. Too much shindigger, you forget it. <laughs> is, is there an occasion in a game where it's inappropriate to stick a shoggoth in it? I think it's over to you because this is your theory, isn't it, that you should just stick a shoggoth in it and everyone's happy. Yeah, exactly. That's from uh, Lee Williams. And uh, Lee's done a T-shirt, actually, that you can get on Redbubble that says stick a shoggoth in it and everyone's happy. <laughs> This is great with truth in there, isn't it? There is. Even Conan, you know, this Conan game, it makes a big deal over the fact that it combines Robert E. Howard with H.P. Lovecraft. Hmm. You know, you can have a Shoggoth in Conan. Why does it have to be H.P. Lovecraft's Shoggoths that have kind of... It's, it's odd, isn't it? It is an odd thing, this. You know, and I, I found this when I bought Cthulhu Dark. And part of me, although I like the game, there was a part of me that thought, why, why, did I, why do I feel the need? Why, am I, why are we all drawn to Cthulhu? What is it? What, what I'm going to say now is when people are thinking of sticking a Shoggoth in it, they should actually stick a Ray Harryhausen Cyclops in it. Do you not think? They don't have quite the same ring to it, though, does it? Stick a Shoggoth in it. You can get that on a T-shirt. No, that is on the T-shirt. Stick a Ray Harryhausen Cyclops in it. It doesn't quite... Roll off the tongue. <laughs> no. Thunder phase. If you had the energy, what would the RPG you would write be about? And that's from Michael Kuehl from Improvised Radio Theatre with Dice. You've always been a good supporter of uh, the Grognard file. So, yeah. So I'm, glad never... he said, I'm glad he said if, if you have the energy, because my answer would be I haven't got the energy. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it, that I have no desire to be an RPG creator in that way. Um, no, no, I'm not. Not at all. The, the thing is with this question, it, immediately you start thinking of genres and stuff. Mm. And we, we know that we'll mention something and somebody, somebody will go, well, I think you'll find that there is already an RPG that covers that area. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because there's too yeah. many of them, isn't there? There's too many of them out there. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot there are. There's a lot of games out there, isn't there? quite astonishing really because you you kind of think of you, we always think because this is the kind of myths we peddle isn't it 
uh, the 80s was some golden era. But, I mean, good God, there's, there's so many more games now than then, isn't there? So many. Yeah, but I will, I will answer the question because, you know, we've been asked it. The genre of uh, movies that I love and the genre of TV I love is uh, New York crime. I even I have no interest really in um, computer games, but whenever like they did a Godfather uh, game, and I got that and played with it because I was interested. In it. it turned out to just be like Grand Theft Auto. I've no interest in that. What I'm interested in how the power structures uh, are maintained in um, you know, in 70s gangland America where, you know, you had to secure your power base, had to run rackets, had to uh, serve the bosses above you and kick back and dealing with all that kind of thing fascinates me. And that whole feeling of terror that you might get whacked at any moment. What a horrible way to live, but exciting to try and simulate within a role-playing game. I think you'll find that gangbusters in 1983 <laughs> recreating... <laughs> Uh, that's your idea, Con. <laughs> Get out of the office. You made your pitch. Dragon's Den. No, I'm out. Twenties, isn't it? That's twenties crime. I'm yeah, talking. Just about. hack it, man. Just hack it, man. Hey, <laughs> just hack it. Get out. Go away with your stupid ideas. Oh, no. <laughs> and this, and this is why I will never have an RPG game to my name. But the odd, the odd thing is, we, neither of us are interested in doing it because I do think that the joy of role playing is the creativity of coming up with your own scenarios, your own characters. There's there's enough creativity in. There's a great thing about a hobby, isn't it? There's enough creativity in in being a player and games master. In 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 your own right, you you don't. It's not like. It's not a passive thing, is it? It's not like listening to an album, to an LP, an album, an LP. That's what you said, also. Not listening to a song and enjoying the song, but you, you can't do this. You can't create the song. You know, it's a passive experience, isn't it? But role playing of all the of all the the things I do, it's the most creative and participatory thing, isn't it? Both both at home, putting together scenarios, sitting around the table, all those things. So. I don't have the urge to create a role-playing game because I'm too busy creating stories and scenarios and stuff with the games I've got. Yeah. You know. Just just imagine playing uh, Jimmy Hoffa and the Teamsters. Anyway, I'll just put that out there. And, right, right, you uh, you go I'm next. just going to dig my old copy of the Gangbusters out. <laughs> okay. Thunder phase. Okay, here we go. One shot, question mark. Three-month campaign, question mark. Or three-year campaign? Question. Oh, that's another one from Wayne Peters. That one. That the man has. Does the man never stop asking questions? He's, people like him cause unrest. Asking all these questions. I think he's to send the authorities around. Stop it, Wayne. Stop asking questions. It's a good question, though, isn't it? At mine, I'm instinctively drawn to three-month campaign. We do a lot of one-shots, but a lot of games. Um, you can you can do a one shot with them, a bit like you're saying about about Mortborg. You know, we did that did that one shot, but the characters somehow made you think, oh, you could run these characters for a bit, couldn't you? So I do think more, most games can be opened up into more than a, a more fulfilling if it's more than just a one shot. You know, but I think a three year campaign that's a big that's a big thing, isn't it? That's a big commitment, isn't it? 
what I found, what I found, I've been saying this for a, a bit, I've known over the last few weeks, is because I've played a lot of online games. Mm. You do start to get into the pattern of them, don't you? They do in those two-hour slots. They do have the biorhythms that uh, mm. happen within those two hours because inevitably you've got to start in with the action. So even if you're not running a one-shot and you're running a, a campaign game, the inclination is to right cut to the point where something's happening. Yeah, yeah. You don't really have the scope in those two hours to wander around and explore things mm. same way that you would do it around the table. So it, I, I think you're right. I think that uh, three-month stretch, of, you know, that 12-week does give you a bit more room to explore things, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And most, like I said, most games, they're, they're almost designed to be played over a period, a number of sessions to develop characters. Now, when I say develop characters, I don't mean necessarily character progression let characters play a characters breathe a bit i do i think you're when, right. when, we pl- when, when we played those big D campaigns particularly dragon heist i can remember sessions you know we were playing every other week every other wednesday for a year and there were sessions where nothing nothing much happened sometimes nothing much happened mm. you know there was one session where a couple of the player characters taught the way into a temple and tricked somebody and there's most of the session was this kind of hilarious tricking this priest priestess into thinking there was someone else, and ultimately it didn't it didn't move the plot on very much. It moved it on a little bit, but it was a memorable session because it didn't matter. You know, you thought we're playing again in a couple of weeks. There's, there's no rush. You can have some fun. You can have a bit of fun with your characters and goof around a bit. And that's, I, think that, I think that's the one that I fell asleep in. <laughs> That's how good it was. <laughs> that's how memorable it was, yeah. Well, that's your fault, isn't it? That was your fault. You didn't participate. <laughs> three years is like playing forever, isn't it? You can't think you've been playing it for three years, you can play it forever then. Keep going yeah, but we played we played Massive Nerflet up over three and a half years. We played um, Two Headed Serpent over exactly two years. I suppose, it's, I suppose it depends how frequently you're playing as well, doesn't it? If you're playing yeah. every week for three years, that's one thing. I suppose if you're playing every once a month for three years, that's not quite the same, is it? Yeah. I, do, I think there's a sense of satisfaction in doing those big campaigns, you know, when you completion, complete them. But sometimes is it just, you know, you're eating your vegetables, you know, you feel like you're doing Well, I think, yeah, I, I, I think it's interesting that those very big campaigns are the pre-written ones that you, you have a sense of. We're doing massive Nathletep, and we're doing this. We're, do, we're doing this thing that is there. We're, do, we're, doing, we're, do, we're, we're doing the enemy within. We're doing massive Nathletep. We're doing these yeah. uh, big-ticket campaigns. Because and that's why, they, that's why they last so long, because there's a sense of, like, it's like running a marathon. You are doing, we are going to get to the finish line. We're going to say we've done this. Whereas maybe if it's a homebrew thing for three years, it's a bit different, isn't it? Yeah. You know, because you've always got the option of, of bailing out if you get a bit bored of it. Okay. I've got the uh, last one. Thunder phase. Who would win in a fight? Paddington Bear or Winnie the Pooh? Paddington Bear or Winnie the Pooh? Paddington Bear. Do I need That's... to explain any further? Do I, I, need to just... I think so. Well, I, I, the opposite. I think Winnie the Pooh. Winnie the Pooh? Yeah. In a fight? 
Yes. Well, what? What's he going to do? Hit him with the honey pot he's got stuck on his hand. Well, what's that what he going to do? Chuck a, a man with a hard stare. Hard stare. He has a superpower, doesn't he? Yeah, but the, hard, what, the Paddington hard stare. What Winnie the Pooh's got, Paddington likes, is a posse. So, you know, he's got oh, yeah. ER. Of course, of course, ER and Piglet. What's pink and hard? Piglet with a <laughs> flick knife. Uh, Paddington's some darkest Peru. Winnie the Pooh from, oh, nine, what is it? The Nine Acre Wood or whatever. 100 Acre Wood. 100, 100, 100, 100 Acre Wood. We're selling him short. 100 Acre Wood. He paces okay. those 100 Acres. He, yeah, he's yeah, done yeah. the he's, he's, He lives in the little fair, but Paddington, darkest Peru. So if we're going to resolve this, how are we going to resolve it? We're going to have to use a game system to uh, actually pit Pooh and his posse against uh, Paddington whoa, and his duffel coat. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Well, you see, you're cheating, aren't you, there? Why am I cheating? cheating. I, see what, I see what you've done there. Very cleverly introduced the posse. That's not the... The question is not Winnie the Pooh and his posse versus Paddington. It's man or man. Bear or bear. Paddington, bear on bear. Paddington bear versus Winnie the Pooh. Not the posse. The posse can't get involved in it. Otherwise, I'll get I'll get Paddington bears. What family lives with? I'll get them involved. Yeah. You can't. You can't have. You can't bring Piglet and Eeyore and Kanga well, and and we'll see, what's we'll the see Tigger to a fight. Although to be fair, even if he did, I still think Paddington could take them all. <laughs> all right then. That's, <laughs> I think that, that's a challenge. I think we need to come to an end. We've been doing this for a while. And uh, so that's the celebratory uh, five years of uh, the Grog Pod. Let me ask a let me ask a question. Right, mm-hmm. out of uh, being in this uh, podcast, being roped into it, what's the best thing that you've got out of it? It's all the people and all the games yeah. you played that we've that the podcast kind of triggered. Really, doing the yeah. podcast was the was the springboard to all the other things. Yeah, it's kind of created a community by accident, hasn't it? And mm. that is the best thing you know it's yeah. great that, that we're playing games again who'd have thought it you know and revived a hobby that we enjoyed uh, way back then and uh we're enjoying it much as, as much now if not more you know well uh, I, I think that's the irony the irony is that when we started doing the podcast it was to wax lyrical about the golden age of role playing so there we were a couple of you know, middle-aged men waxing about or oh, you know remember back in the day how wonderful this was but to be honest, now we've got to a point where back in the day seems sort of tame and rather lukewarm compared to now. Yeah. Because I think I'm gaming more now, gaming more, playing more games with more people, different different perspectives on things and all sorts of things. So that's the irony. It's gone from two old duffers reminiscing about how wonderful the past was to actually actually the, the present and the future are more wonderful than the past really yeah yeah you know? absolutely ironically and, and you know what it's kept me saying over these last uh, few months when we've had this period of unpleasantness to know that actually i've got something to look forward to in engaging with people uh, on the uh, you know playing games and uh, having this yeah. to distract you because know, you know that's all we need from life, isn't it? A series of distractions to uh, face get, up get to us, the, Get us through it. Get us through it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And okay. by, by accident, we discovered the greatest distraction of them all. Yeah, we did, didn't we? Yeah. People, people are looking for distractions that we found the best one. The most absorbing and obsessive 
distraction of the lot role-playing games yeah yeah games that you can play with your friends and even play when you're not playing <laughs> exactly <laughs> and, and people often ask me you know how long is it going to go on for and uh i always say well i think we've got another 12 months in us and i still think that you know i only ever see 12 months ahead but it feels very much alive now doesn't it and it feels enjoyable and while it's still fun we should keep on mm. doing it yeah definitely nice one all right, right then, by the way, let's uh, have some more of this uh, pheasant plucker cheers <laughs> cheers thank you to jason and bud for their contributions this episode it's hard to believe that we've been doing this for five years it's been great forming new friendships along the way plays the thing And I'm looking forward to meeting new friends, having new experiences while playing old games for years to come. I planned these with a rolling 12 months, so we'll be keeping on going for at least until this time next year, hopefully a bit longer. Why would we stop while we're having fun? Due to the ongoing global pandemic, we've reluctantly decided that Grogmeet is going to be an online event this year. Grogmeat is dead. Long live Grogmeat-ish 2020. You're all invited to have adventures delivered direct to your armchair. It starts on the 13th of November with an epic tournament dungeon hosted by Old Scouts Roleplayer. The main event is on the 14th of November with four slots. One is a bit later GMT to allow our overseas listeners to take part. On the 15th, there'll be a special guest streamed live from the room of role-playing rambling. To see more details, check out thegrognardfiles.com. You should go there too to take part in the Return of the White Dwarf Weekly Book Club. To enjoy the benefits of being part of the Grog Squad, check out our Patreon. Thank you to all those over the past five years who've generously given a tip to cover our costs, fund additional projects and give a much needed encouragement to continue. It's really appreciated. We've got some new joiners and some pledge increases. So thank you. So taking an armchair and a fancy poof, got Qwerty Bertie, James Doan and Jesse Reisman. They've bumped up to put their feet up. Joining us too is Alexander Porter and Rick Payne. Also increasing his pledge is Paul Fricker. I mentioned Full Fathom 5. The shingdigger mangled the title a bit, but it's a very atmospheric scenario set on board a whaling ship. Even if you don't intend playing it, I recommend that you get hold of a copy because it's one of those scenarios that's good to read and it's available at the Miskatonic repository over at Drive Through RPG. At $5, I like to award a special gift from a relevant table from the game under discussion. When I originally had the idea of this, I just thought that every month I would roll a chaotic feature from the chaotic features table. So I'm going to do that today from the latest Glorantha Bestry. So uh, first up is Michael Butler and he gets 29. He's got a very confusing appearance. Thanks, Michael. Next is Ian Stead, 71. Stench is overpowering. Ooh, 
And uh, next up is Andrew McLaren, and he's increased his pledge. So here we go. He's got a hideous demoralising appearance. Thanks, Andrew. Now, at the top level, with a high-back chair and one of those little rugs around it, and uh, a full suite, we've got Matt Jackson, who's been very supportive recently. So I'm going to say he's got... Well, he can breathe fire three times a day. Increasing their pledge so that they get the high-back chair is things happen. And things happen utters agonising screams when he moves. So that's it for the special anniversary episode. Next time, we'll be addressing 1980s anxieties full on. Until then, here's Grace. Adios, amigos. Adios, amigos.